Episode of According to RP on WJMS Radio. It's your girl Rita Pierre, your host. And as always, I hope you guys are striving, thriving, and surviving in these corona-infested streets. So happy Sunday, everyone, and happy new week. I hope you guys are getting ready for the week to come. I wish you all all the prosperity, positivity, uh, productivity for the week ahead. So today we are not going to get into the preliminaries. I know, very sad, but we have a very important conversation today. We are going to be talking about domestic violence as October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. We want to make sure that we are part of the conversation and that we're pushing the needle forward when it comes to raising awareness and you know, bringing forth change in our communities. And to do that, we have an amazing guest by the name of Rosemond Pierre-Louis, who is the chief operating officer at the McSilver Institute at New York University. And so we are going to engage in a very robust conversation with respect to domestic violence, what it is, um, what can we do to support victims and survivors of domestic violence? What are some of the, the actual signs um, and things of that nature. So you definitely want to keep it locked. It's one of those things where even though we ourselves may not be experiencing domestic violence, but I truly believe that everyone knows at least someone that has or is experiencing domestic violence. And so this is something this is a topic that we all need to be educated on in order to really eradicate um, this type of violence in our community. So with that being said, everyone, we're going to move on to the meat of the show. I'm here with my very special guest, Rose Pierre-Louis. Rose, please say hello. Hi. Good afternoon, everybody. <laughs> so, Rose, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule because you are a very important person. If nobody knows that you're important, I'm letting them know. <laughs> you are a very important person. You're very sweet. You're very sweet. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> but, yeah, just uh, for taking the time to just be on this show to talk about a very, very important topic. Absolutely. Um, one, I'm happy to be with you and uh, um, I'm honored to be on the show and to have a conversation about something as important as the issue of domestic violence, which is something that's very much close to my heart. And I know that's something uh, that is of importance to you and your listeners. So I'm really looking forward to dispelling myths and really talking specifically about what's going on in terms of DV during the time of COVID. Okay. And so Rose, just share a little bit with us about, you know, who you are, where you're from, what you do. Sure. 
Sure. Sure. <laughs> um, hi, uh, again, I'm Rose Pierre-Louis, and currently I'm the Chief Operating Officer at the NYU McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research. And prior to that, I spent time in, in government and served as the Commissioner of the Mayor's Office to Combat Domestic Violence under the administration of our current mayor, Bill de Blasio. And uh, prior to that, for eight years, I served as Manhattan Deputy Borough President uh, during the administration of uh, then Borough President and now Comptroller Scott Stringer. Um, but for most of my career, um, I, I've practiced law as an attorney, and my passion has been focused on representing survivors of domestic violence, but also focused on um, the civil legal services and the civil legal justice system to ensure that um, New Yorkers have access to um, the courts and representation um, because we all deserve um, representation regardless of our economic background. So I'm also um, one of the co-founders of the Haitian Roundtable and a proud Haitian American uh, born in Cleveland, Ohio and raised on Long Island. Okay, okay. And shout out to the Haitian Roundtable. <laughs> you yes. guys have been around for quite some time and, you we, know. We have. I mean, HRT is uh, is definitely a passion project and and yes, indeed. Shout out to my my brothers and sisters from the board and our members and really proud of the work that we've been able to do over 10 years. I think it's 12 years since HRT was launched as started out as a dinner party and has evolved into an organization that I think is doing some important work. And again, we're always thankful for your support. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. And so Rose, I want to get into this topic of domestic violence. You know, every year, you know, when October comes around, we do see, you know, different organizations, different groups, um, you know, put together programming or messaging with respect to domestic violence. But I feel like this year, um, this topic, I mean, it's, it's an important topic in general, but with this pandemic that's happening right now, I find that more and more people are talking about domestic violence and I guess the impact that COVID has had on, you know, on households like across New York City. I know um, when the pandemic first hit, there were reports that incidents of domestic violence were just on the rise, skyrocketing. The reports were, you know, out of this world. And a lot of people attributed that because of the fact that we were, you know, sheltered in, um, you know, in, in our in our homes and we couldn't necessarily move about. And so I guess tensions and, you know, and, and things of that nature, I guess, rising in the households were causing more of these incidences. But um I think what I tend to find um, is the case is most people really don't know what domestic violence actually is. And so, you know, with, you know, for you as somebody who's been an advocate, who's been on the front lines really of this cause, if you could just maybe explain to the listeners, what exactly is domestic violence? Uh, thank you for that question. And I'm, I, again, I'm so happy we're, talking about this issue because um, it is something that often is 
happening to people that we know and love or members of our family. And a lot of people think that they really understand what domestic violence is, but oftentimes they're talking about the dynamics of domestic violence. And it's really important to understand what domestic violence is. So I'll say at the outset that there is not a universal worldwide accepted um, definition of domestic violence, but there are organizations that I really align with that I think have really great definitions of domestic violence. And I'm going to be used using the one that is provided by Sanctuary for Families, which is an organization that I was trained and I think they're one of the best organizations in New York City today um, providing services to survivors. So uh, domestic violence, first and foremost, is a pattern of abusive behavior in an intimate partner, dating or family relationship where the abuser exerts power and control over the victim. And I think it's really important to underscore the dynamic of power and control. And the violence could be mental, physical, economic, or sexual in nature. Uh, And it's important to understand that incidents are rarely isolated. um, And typically, these incidents uh, escalate in frequency and severity. And domestic violence, as we know, sadly, for many of the stories that we have read um, about how dangerous it can really be, that Domestic violence not only can end in physical injury, but also death. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the part that a lot of people tend to, I guess, not really appreciate. Um, I I remember when I was working at the DA's office in Brooklyn as a domestic violence uh, prosecutor, what I would see, you know, day in, day out is this this lack of uh, appreciation for the fact that this is something that can result in a death, you know, um, a push here, a shove here, a ver- you know, a verbal threat here at the end of the day could result ultimately in death. Like you said, it's something that escalates. It doesn't just really stay stagnant, right? There is a pattern of abuse and the pattern only gets worse if it's not addressed. What I would like to ask, I guess, with your experience, you know, working, not just working with the victims, but being, you know, uh, the commissioner, right, for um, the mayor's office. Former. 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 Sorry. (laughs) Former. Former. I want to give all due due respect. (laughs) It's a slip. It's a slip. Um, The former commissioner uh, for the mayor's office to combat domestic violence. What did you find to be the most challenging aspect when it came to, I guess, sending that message, right? That this, these acts, this, this little shove, this push, this, this verbal threat can be something that can escalate to the point where, you know, it, it could result in death. So I, I certainly, I think um, there are a couple of factors. One, keep in mind that for victims and survivors of intimate partner violence, and we're just talking about in this conversation about um, intimate partners, Mm -hmm. is that um, uh, they first and foremost are the most knowledgeable about the kind of violence they're experiencing and how dangerous the situation is Mm -hmm. and what are the factors that they need to consider in determining when they decide to either 
leave the relation relationship or stay in the relationship and um, looking at what remedies are available to them. I do think there are a lot of myths out there about domestic violence. So for example, uh, there's always perceptions, well, if it's so bad, you know, why didn't they just leave? Mm -hmm. Uh, You hear that a lot, which often is frustrating um, because there's been so much work, particularly done in the state of New York around the issue of domestic violence. And that's why we have to remain vigilant and being in communities, going to the barbershops, going mm-hmm. to the beauty salons, going to the schools, talking to young people, um, talking to our seniors, talking to in, at churches and yeah. house, houses of worship about DV, that um, uh, it is not easy um, and there, there are a lot of factors that need to be considered for survivors. And so oftentimes people think that a survivor can just get up and leave. Um, and that can be extremely dangerous. And a lot of times the reason why a survivor may not leave is that it um, increases the level of dangerousness in terms of, um, uh, of likelihood or an outcome of serious physical injury or death, not only um, of the victim uh, survivor, or it could be um, violence towards a family member or children that you may have in common with the um, perpetrator of the violence. And so I, what I really want to continue for us to have conversations like this, whether it's big or small or on a podcast or, or just with a a neighbor or a friend is that really we have a responsibility as New Yorkers to understand that this is an issue that impacts more people than you think, regardless of your background, your Mm -hmm. race, your socioeconomic standing, uh, what neighborhood you live in, what profession you have, and that we should be um, knowledgeable about what domestic violence is, how it can manifest itself, particularly beyond the physical. Mm-hmm. So understanding that a lot of people think, well, she didn't have any bruises or he didn't have a, a bruises or they didn't have bruises. Understand that domestic violence, physical is one aspect of it. Certainly, you know, the power and control wheel, um, Rita, which is a um, tool that really helps to illustrate um, sort of these dynamics Mm -hmm. regarding domestic violence. And of course, we know it includes not just physical abuse, but the punch, the slaps, the hits, the biting, the choking, but it can also be psychological abuse and emotional abuse and verbal abuse. And when you, when you, talk to survivors of domestic violence, oftentimes they will say that these forms of abuse, which are not physical in nature, but emotional and psychological in nature can be just as traumatizing, right? And leave scars. Also, we're learning a lot more in terms of economic abuse, correct? So for example, um, abusers can be very, um, they know that if they are able to control your economic 
um, access and yeah. access to money, access to your paycheck, um, access to the opportunity to work period, that you're more likely to stay in an abusive relationship because if you don't have the financial resources or have access to supports like and organizations and hotlines that you're likely to stay. Something that particularly for our young people that we really should be mindful of is the technological abuse and um, how uh, things like uh, pictures and images and um, um, all forms of technological abuse um, are, are, are being used. And certainly sexual abuse is something that we really also need to keep in mind that that can happen um, with someone um, uh, who's been in an intimate relationship, that uh, sexual abuse, a lot of times people will say, well, how can a spouse rape Mm -hmm. uh, another spouse? Well, you know, under the law that 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 can happen and does happen regularly. And certainly, um, you know, you hear these cases and and I, I know uh, this may bring back some memories that um, oftentimes abusers can be very sophisticated in the mm-hmm. way that they use the legal system. And they may know that they will go to jail if they, you know, physically hurt someone or try to um, in- engage in that um, uh, seriously violent behavior, but they may, you know, knowingly bring a a custody and visitation case that may last years and years and years. And so it's important for us to understand that um, there are tactics that are used by abusers also. Uh, So for example, uh, whether it's isolation, uh, taking you away from your family, your friends, Mm or your support network. So again, um, Uh, understanding what domestic violence is, knowing as community members and neighbors and friends and siblings and parents um, and and those those who care, we really need to be mindful and uh, uh, continue to um, dispel myths about domestic violence and um, uh, not only what we can do to support survivors, but to understand the real reasons and how serious and how dangerous these kinds of cases can be. Yeah, I think you touched on so many important points. This idea um, that, you know, if you didn't leave, it's because you didn't want to, or, you know, it can't, like you said, it can't be that bad if you're still there. I think that, you know, that is such, such a misconception um, and I find that, you know, the majority of people do think that way. They think that it's very easy to just get up and go and they don't appreciate not just the the logistical aspect of it, but the emotional, you know, trauma that might be involved with that too. Can I just say one thing about that? I'm sorry to interrupt no, it's okay. you. I would say also in considering what the factors are that are involved in these cases mm-hmm. is that there could be religious factors, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there could be cultural factors um, that may prevent somebody from leaving, which adds to the complexity of, of these cases. And mm-hmm. so it's important to remember, it's not as simple as just picking up your 
your your belongings. Oftentimes, you know, there are cases uh, that I know that both of us have dealt with where people are just literally leaving their homes mm-hmm. and grabbing their children just with the clothes that are on their backs. And yeah. so it's a, it, it is really important to understand that not every case of domestic violence is the same. Yeah. And each person's uh, case has a unique set of factors and that we um, should understand that um, domestic violence is, can be deadly serious. Yeah. And even when we talk about shelters, you know, I used to hear that all the time as well, too. Well, they can just go to a shelter. Shelters are, are not necessarily the most appealing place. But let me say this, because I think it's really important, um, particularly um, to the organizations that are providing this service. Mm-hmm. And I would say, by and large, shelters have been a tremendous part of the safety net for survivors of uh, a victim of domestic violence. Mm-hmm. And it had been a place where they've been able to get access to resources, support, and services. So I do not, as part of this conversation, want to stop anyone from thinking about shelter mm-hmm. as part of their safety planning. Mm-hmm. Certain, and, and I'm not going to say there are never in, instances, but I would say by and large, the shelter systems are places that are places of refuge Mm -hmm. um, uh, for survivors. And depending upon your circumstances, they are part of the safety net. And so I I, I think we have to be very careful Mm -hmm. about these instances. When you look at the thousands of people that go through shelters, Mm -hmm. by and large, uh, it has been a place of safety. And, and so I, I think we, we, we have to be careful um, about that, certainly, because I'm sure that there will be people mm-hmm. um, that listen to this conversation and um, um, are seriously considering making that first step and call um, um, to remove themselves from an abusive relationship, and I don't want them to feel like they can't go into shelter. So there are challenges. I'm not saying um, uh, that the system is perfect, mm-hmm. but there are a lot of investments that have been put into the city, um, and certainly you have um, uh, resources like the Family Justice Centers mm-hmm. um, that are under the mayor's office and the district district attorney's offices that are a tremendous resource and can help guide um, uh, victims um, through the shelter process. And of course, there's the the Safe Horizon Domestic Violence Hotline, um, which is also available. I'm really happy that you did um, clarify that because I because that is what you hear from a lot Mm -hmm. of different individuals, whether Mm -hmm. they actually are involved in domestic violence work or not. But that's the first Mm -hmm. thing that you will hear somebody say is that, well, you know, the shelter system is not necessarily that reliable anyways. And so I think that it's very important that you did uh, bring forth that point and clarify that. Um, And I put into perspective, like you said, thousands of, you know, women um, and men are going through these, you know, through this shelter process. So, you know, if, if one or two, you know, something slips in it is what it is at the end of the day by and large like you said for the most part um these shelters are there to be a refuge to victims and and, or survivors rather and so i'm very happy that we touched that and certainly um 
there are a limited limited number of shelter beds. And I, I often feel that, again, uh, the safety net um, can be complex because there is the homeless shelter system, which oftentimes I feel like those stories that they're talking mm, about yes. could be in the homeless shelter system, but there is a separate DV shelter system. Um, so I, I think it's important for, for, for people to really understand, and I know it's complex and for lay people that are not involved in this work, it could be confusing, but mm-hmm. by and large, um, uh, uh, for, for thousands of New Yorkers on an annual basis, the shelters are a resource. And so I want to make sure that anyone who's listening, and, and wants to leave and, and is considering shelter, please reach out to the hotline and to the Family Justice Center um, that can help you in thinking about not only your safety planning, but the option of shelter. Mm-hmm. So the next thing I wanted to touch on was, um, you know, immigration status, right? And so I know that in my past work, we've had a lot of, you know, victims. They've wanted to come forward, but because of their immigration status, because of the threats that were made to them by their partner, you know, they've, they've refrained from doing so out of fear of either being deported um, and whatnot. And so um, for those people that, you know, that might be listening, is there protection for victims of domestic violence who are undocumented? It's a great question, um, and um, there are resources available um, um, under the immigration laws. Um, and again, I would recommend that um, victims who fall into that category should reach out to the family justice centers or organizations like Sanctuary for Families, Safe Horizon, um, Legal Services, and Legal Aid to guide you through that process. And I think you're touching upon upon another piece of the legal abuse aspect of it, because oftentimes an abuser as part of the power control can say, well, if you leave, I will not complete your paperwork Mm -hmm. for a green card. Or if the person um, does not have any documentation whatsoever, that there are threats, particularly if that person is a citizen or has their green card, that, oh, I'm going to call the police or mm-hmm. or if you call the police, I'm going to tell the police that you're undocumented. Yeah. And the police is never going to ask about the NYPD, I should say, will never ask about someone's status. But there are... Um, There are resources available for immigrant survivors of domestic violence. And again, um, to the extent that's possible, reach out to one of the organizations and perhaps, um, Rita, you can share on social media what Mm -hmm. those organizations are. I can send something to you so that people, uh, people know. But again, in a city as diverse as New York, we know that, um, um, that there are disproportionate impacts of um, domestic violence um, within the immigrant community as there are in, in other communities. So it is an important issue, and certainly for both, 
for, for us both being Haitian American, mm-hmm. it's also something that in our community we really need to talk about. But certainly um, it is an important factor in terms of uh, immigration status and how it's used in terms of the power and control and the coercion, mm-hmm. but also uh, victims may feel like they don't have resources and there are resources under the law, but there are specific factors um, to each and every uh, each and every um, aspect of relief that's available. So again, please contact um, the Family Justice Center or one of the other um, the hotline who can uh, guide you um, uh, in the right direction. Okay. Now I know you had, you talked uh, just now about the. Uh, you know, being Haitian American and and the cultural aspect, right, I guess, of this domestic violence topic. Now, you know, we know that domestic violence, you know, it it can be seen across the board. It doesn't discriminate rich, poor, white, black. Um, It exists in in pretty much every every aspect, right? But when we're talking about, you know, the Caribbean community, the African community, you know, when people say that this is, you know, this is part of our, our culture, this is just what happens. Um, you know, we don't speak about it. This is part of, this is just what, what goes on in the homes. Do you find that that is something that's really attributable to this, the Caribbean culture, the African culture? So another great question. Um, so what I would say is um, we should, uh, you know, I get asked all the time, like, what's the profile of a victim? Mm-hmm. What's a profile? What's a profile of an abuser? And I would say uh, there really is one. There is there really is not one, and it's dangerous to suggest that it only happens in certain communities. Mm-hmm. And certainly, uh, I think some would argue that within patriarchal societies, the, like many countries around the world that um uh that that view women in more of those traditional ways you may see that domestic violence is a factor Mm -hmm. um uh but i think there's a danger to say well it's only in the caribbean community it's only in the african community i mean in my time in my 17 years of of handling domestic violence cases you see people from all walks of life, mm-hmm. all backgrounds, and certainly, um, uh, I would say uh, uh, there could be some cultural norms um, um, around women. Certainly, we know in s- certain cultures there are things like honor killings. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know about things like female genital mutilation yeah. um, that happens. That is culturally specific. Um, we know about forced marriages um, that are happening in certain cultures, um, but I think we we have to be knowledgeable in in and not trying to say it's isolated to yeah. a certain type of community. What I do feel that we must do more, particularly in communities like ours in the Haitian community. Um, is to continue to have these conversations and particularly to bring in um, the entire community to the conversation. Certainly, have I heard comments like, well, um, she's my wife, I should be able to hit her. I mean, I literally heard that um, 
uh, from people, certainly um, across the board Mm -hmm. uh, from people um, and that, um, you know, women have to, you know, she's, she's, she's getting too uppity. And so I had to put her uh, in their place. I think you hear that in cultures. And, and also I want to point out that um, this is not just isolated to women. Certainly men can be Mm -hmm. victims of domestic violence. And we know that in the LGBTQ community, that there are similar rates of domestic violence as there are in heterosexual um, relationships. So Mm -hmm. again, it just really underscores that this happens across the board. Um, uh, Similar to your point about um, cultural aspects, um, you know, I hear people say, well, that would never happen on the Upper East Side. Yeah. Yes, it it does. (laughs) Or it doesn't happen in the Hamptons. Mm -hmm. Yes, it does. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so um, I think uh, we have to do more to be myth busters Mm -hmm. and, um, to challenge those that perpetrate um, misconceptions about victims. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know there's been a lot of incredible work done in um, uh, immigrant communities. Um, You have organizations like Saki that has worked with the South Asian community. Um, And um, you've had organizations in the past like Dwafam that did work in the Haitian Mm -hmm. community. You have Black Women's Blueprint. Um, uh, You have the Arab American um, Center, which does great work. The Korean American Family Center that does great work. So there's a lot of work being done in communities to have conversations about domestic violence and to let people in those community communities know that they're not alone. Because I do think you often hear from victims. I was embarrassed, didn't know where to turn. Um, uh, I was afraid to, to go to my family members or my in-laws or um, my employer because I was afraid of losing my job. And we really need to create an environment, one, where we are uniformly saying violence of any form towards anybody mm-hmm. is unacceptable. And that if you know of someone who is experiencing violence and they come out, uh, come to you, not come out, but come to you in, in, in seeking help that you have the information that you need to, to, to support them through that process and not, and to do it in a way that is not judgmental. Um, I, I personally say all the time, I hear women, um, during my time and during this work and even in casual conversation, people say to me, well, that will never happen to me because mm-hmm. I'm so, and so, and so, and so, and so, and so. And I, I think it's important for us to be honest. And, and I, I think with rare exceptions that all of us have been in relationships, intimate relationships with people that have not treated us well. And we've yeah. stayed. Maybe it's not been violence. Like if you're real, like to be really real, if you're being very honest with yourself, you you know that you've been in relationships Mm -hmm. for the most part 
where we have not been treated well by someone and have chosen to stay for whatever reason it is. And so who are we, who are we to judge? And, and um, I think we have a responsibility to young people. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I think uh, it's really important and to understand that children um, uh, model behavior. Yes. I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist, but what I do know is that um, kids do model behavior. And in a time where we see our young people a uh, lot uh, dealing with issues of hyper masculinity and uh, hypersexualization, mm-hmm. um, that it's important that we have conversations. I mean, um, I used to say when I would um, talk to young women and, and then they would be, you know, they would say to me, well, my boyfriend loves me. My boyfriend loves me. And I would say, why? Yeah. <laughs> what, what is he doing? That's, and they would say, well, you know, he's constantly checking on me. He wants to know where I am. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I used to be able to dress a certain way, but now I can't, I can't do that. Um, and I was like, baby, that's not love. He's clocking you. And I know I'm old. I'm using an old phrase, but that, 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 okay, that's all right. But people know what I'm saying, that that is a form of, of control. And what I would say to those young, um, ladies is, um, when you try to do that to him, what happens? And they're like, he doesn't respond. Right. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And so it's important that we really are um, candid and uh, honest about this with young people because um, uh, there is sometimes a wrongful perception that if uh, someone hits you, that means they love you. Yeah. Or that someone says, no one, no one I've ever worked with or represented has ever said, I like to get hit. Yeah. Right. A lot of people say another myth, um, you know, you know, she likes to, she likes when I beat her up or he likes when I beat him up. There's, there's no such thing, right? No one deserves to be abused. Nobody wants to be abused in that way by their intimate partner. Yeah, I think, you know, you touched it right on the nail when you when when you talked about, you know, with the young girls saying that, well, you know, if he if he if he hits me, he likes me. That's messaging. I mean, I think even from this elementary school being on the playground when, you know, you would watch these, you know, whether it happened in your actual actual household or if it was a TV show that, well, if he really, really likes you, if he hits you, that means he really, really likes you. Like this is these are TV shows. And this is like the rhetoric that I remember even as a child hearing, you know, when a kid shoved you on the playground. And so it's really interesting how like, you know, now we're growing up and we're, we're seeing how things truly work, um, how we've been trained or geared from childhood to believe that certain things were okay and certain actions towards us were acceptable. And I think, you know, as going along with what you said, being just honest and candid with the young generation, but I think really just taking stock of what we're saying to them, like, you know, what the messaging is to them with respect to relationships, what's healthy, what's not, um, is really important. Also, I would say, um, 
you often see if you're riding the train and in the morning or in the afternoons, you'll see, they'll be coming back from school and they're like in jest, like hitting each other and slapping each mm-hmm. other or calling each other really disgusting names. And it's almost normalizing the yeah. kind of abusive language and behavior that can carry on into um, relationships and certainly the whole um issue of, you know, during when the relationship is good and you may send them uh, a more intimate photo of yourself and then they are sharing that, um, uh, you know, whether you decide to leave them. And uh, a lot of people have called that in the past revenge porn Mm -hmm. and things like that. I mean, this is real stuff that's happening. It's not just young people. You hear stories of adults um, that that's happening to. So, um, I think we really, um, again, uh, these conversations that we're having are so important. And I think it's important to also um, bring men into the conversation mm-hmm. uh, and um, to know that men want to be allies um, in this work. And I think that's a really important point because oftentimes when you hear these conversations, um, I don't want to say rarely, but at least in my experience, I, I usually do not see men part of the conversations. They're not brought into the conversations with respect to um, domestic violence, period. And so I think that that point um, is very critical that, you know, not not bring them into to just hone in on the fact that men experience domestic violence, too. But then that ally, that allyship that I think is really important. I, I would say that one of the things that has really um, developed as part of the anti-violence movement in New York, at least I can say this with a surety, is that you have organizations like um, uh, A Call to Men Mm -hmm. uh, and Ted Bunch uh, that has been around for a very long time and doing this work in communities with men. You have uh, Quentin Walcott from Connect, Uh, and many other leaders. You have legislators um, uh, like Scott Stringer, my former uh, uh, boss who has done a lot of work um, around this issue, particularly in terms of legislation. But there are so many elected officials, and certainly Mayor de Blasio and Mm -hmm. and the First Lady have really um, done a great job to address um, and raise uh, raise consciousness around mm-hmm. uh, domestic violence. And so, listen, can we do more? But uh, I see more and more young men, fraternities and sororities speaking out about this issue and doing forums on campus. Mm-hmm. Um, and that to me is progress and an understanding that um, uh, we, we have to keep the conversation going. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. And, you know, I encourage those who are listening, who do have the the ability to be able to create these safe spaces for people to have these conversations to do so. I know that in this time of COVID, it's a little harder to have these in-person, uh, you know, groups, but, you know, the virtual world is at everyone's disposal. And I also encourage people to not just, you know, talk about domestic violence in the month of October, but to talk about it, you know, as often as one can, because I find that once October is done, you, you kind of stop hearing about the awareness part. People kind of stop talking about it. And then 
you know, domestic violence happens 365 days a year. Thank you so much for saying that because um, <laughs> it does happen uh, 365 days a year, 24 mm-hmm. um around the globe. Um, and we must continue to um, understand that every month is Domestic Violence yeah. Awareness Month, sadly, and, and what we want to do is a eradicate this kind of violence, mm-hmm. um, not only in the United States, but around the world. If somebody were to say, well, how, how can I properly support somebody who is experiencing domestic violence? What would your advice to them be? Sure. That's a, that's a big question. <laughs> what I would say is, um, in my experience, what I have found is that um, survivors are um, able to identify a person that they've confided to mm-hmm. or someone who sort of approached them about this. And I think it's important to understand what safety planning is. So sometimes people use a code word or um, uh, again with technology and one of the things that Texting has been a really important um, tool for survivors to communicate, um, whether it be to their advocate, their attorney, but it could also be to a friend. So it's like establish some kind of way of communicating so that if the survivors in distress and needs help, that there is... um, uh, there is uh, a way that you have some pathway to to communicate. Sometimes uh, survivors, as they're thinking about leaving, may have a go bag but are afraid to keep it in the house. Maybe you keep the go bag mm-hmm. at your place, or maybe um, the survivor um, needs support in copying of documents and doesn't have the resources to do that mm-hmm. and needs a safe place to store them. Or maybe the person doesn't have access to the internet, that they're barred from access to the internet, that you can help them research information or call the hotline and, and, and find out for them if they're too afraid to call and mm-hmm. say, can you call on my behalf? is to find out what resources and what tools there are. But I would say, again, is to ensure that you are not judgmental and that you are there to support them. And there will be some people that are fearful themselves and don't want to get involved, especially in this kind of um, culture that we have today in the United States, unfortunately, that uh, I, I understand that. Um, but I hope that there are people that understand that you could be a lifeline yeah. for someone. And certainly uh, with the advent of technology, there's a lot of information of resources um, and um, ways in which and tools for, for family members, for friends, um, for coworkers to be able to, to help um, uh, someone who uh, is experiencing domestic violence wants to get out of an abusive relationship. Okay. Now, I know I said the last question, but I, this one just popped no, right back I in mean, my I, head. 
I, I can talk about this all day. It's, it's, it's uh, something very close to my heart. So I know offline we had talked about, you know, the COVID-19 epidemic, right? Or pandemic, whatever it is. I don't even know anymore what to characterize it as. But um, with this, with what's going on with COVID-19, it's still very present and it's definitely had an impact on so many different aspects of, of just everyday living. Um, there are many myths out there. We talk about myth busting and, and there was there was a couple of things that I had heard early on in the pandemic that, you know, no one's getting order of protections, you know, police officers aren't aren't responding to domestic violence disputes. Perpetrators are getting sent back home. So there's no point. Um, so with the current state of of I guess affairs with what's going on right now. If somebody is experiencing domestic violence in this in this pandemic, um, are there resources? Are the are the police you know responding to nine one one calls for domestic violence? Like, is everything just shut down? Or is there can they get help essentially during this time? So um, critically important, um, and I want to be sure that we're really sharing um, accurate information. Uh, obviously, when the city shut down, um, there is adjustments to be made everywhere, and certainly the court systems and all of us had to mm-hmm. adjust to getting our systems together. One, there are mechanisms um, to be able to... Um, uh, get a, a order of protection. And when I'm talking about order of protection right now, I'm talking about on the civil side through the family court. Okay. And again, I would encourage anyone that is looking to navigate these systems again, to reach out to the domestic violence mm-hmm. hotline and to also um, reach out to the family justice centers that are operated um, by the mayor's office to get the appropriate guidance or Safe Horizons or uh, Safe Horizon or Sanctuary for Families. Uh, but yes, the courts are handling cases virtually. They are he- hearing domestic violence cases. And I'm hearing in some instances that trials are being done mm-hmm. virtually and that um, bit by bit they're trying to, depending upon the case, hear cases um, in person. Um, so there, uh, uh, the, the city is extremely, and the court system understands, most importantly, that in these kinds of cases that it's important for um, victims um, to have access to the, the civil legal justice system. Mm-hmm. And some people are saying, well, can I get an order of protection even if I'm still residing with my uh intimate partner? And the answer is yes. Um, And in some instances, the abusive partner, depending upon the severity, the level of dangerousness can be excluded from the home that you share, assuming that you're sharing, living with that person in that, Mm -hmm. in in that context. So Mm -hmm. order of protections are being issued. And, and I would say that the NYPD and their specialized units and officers, detectives within the NYPD who handle, handle strictly domestic violence cases, and they are very much part of the safety net and the lifeline. Um, so, um, you know, things like uh, addressing issues of violations of orders of protection, we know that people 
uh, in instances where they're violating an order of protection, even if you are living with your intimate partner that, uh, that arrests have been made. So um, I just was saying to you before we um, uh, started taping that um, uh, Sanctuary for Families just released this announcement and it says that New York judges will continue to conduct matters virtually due to COVID-19 and the courts are still here. Um, uh, they're still open, uh, but organizations um, like Sanctuary for Families um, are available if you find yourself in need of having to get an order of protection. And I just want to share the information of, yes. about the Sanctuary resource, which is 212-349-6009, extension 246, or you can visit www.sffny.org backslash help. Okay. I think that's a very important, you know, very critical resource. And I'm really happy that you were able to clarify that because I, I know in the beginning of the pandemic, this was, you know, the rhetoric that was just being shared that nothing can be done and I know that people who were hearing that obviously were very, very, you know, scared and, and very fearful. So I'm happy that, you know, we were able to shed some light and, and you know, demystify this, this aspect. Um, Can I share also the domestic violence hotline? Yes, please. Uh, through Safe Horizon. That number is 1-800-621-8000. P-E. That's 1-800-621-H-O-P-E. Okay. And I'm going to also make these available um, on social media. I know that everybody has social media, but for those who are listening and, you know, you can take a screenshot or whatever and share it with whoever you need to. Um, but I think these are very important resources. And, you know, I was uh, very familiar working uh, with hand in hand with the family justice centers, with Safe Horizons. And so they do, you know, amazing work and they help so many people so many families throughout New York City. Um, and so if, you know, you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, these, these um, resources are available. And, and, you know, the individuals who are handling these cases, they're professional. And, you know, it's really about getting the help that, that you need, I think. I can also share with you... Um a resource uh, tool that was developed by the Greater New York Chapter of the Links, which I'm a member of, and um, I will send that to you um, so that you can share on social media. And it has all of the information we just talked about um, today. Okay. Well, Rose, um, I mean, you were a wealth of information. And like you said, we can go on and on and on about this topic because there are just so many different layers and so many different levels. And I definitely hope um, in the future that, you know, we can be able to do something, uh, hopefully in person, but if not, maybe virtual with respect to 
um, domestic violence and really getting into maybe breaking down some of these different levels and having real conversations so that people can truly understand that this is not, it's not a game. It's not a hoax. It's not, it's not fake. People aren't making this up. Like domestic violence is real and people are dying each and every day, every hour, maybe. I don't know what the statistics are, but it's, it's happening at rapid rates throughout the country. Um, and we have to take it seriously. Well, I want to thank you uh, for reaching out and, and having me and, um, and to your listeners, thank you for, for um, you know, taking in this information. I know this is not an easy conversation to have, mm-hmm. uh, but you may find yourself one day in a situation where you are recalling on this information. And if you know someone that um, may be experiencing it, you may be a lifeline to that person and a source of support. So I want to thank you, Rita, for all that you do for continuing to bring us together in this uh, uh, forum uh, to talk about important issues. And I hope that we can certainly continue this conversation um, more intensely uh, in the Haitian community and maybe bring uh, some of the the incredible leaders that we have um, in our community uh, to help us spread the word, but thank you for all that you do and uh, continue to shine the light on domestic violence. Thank you so much, Rose. All right, everyone. Well, thank you so much for tuning into another episode of According to RP on WJMS Radio. It's your girl, Rita Pierre, your host. And as always, I will talk to you guys next week. You were listening to According to RP on WJMS Radio. Tune in each and every Sunday. Can't wait to come back. 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's all online.